you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them please to one of the greatest chapters found in the Bible, Philippians chapter 4, as we continue in our sermon series through this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. The title of our message, A Choice to Rejoice. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to begin reading with verse 4. In fact, we're just going to read verse 4, and we'll look at the verses to follow in just a moment. Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 4, but just reading verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes to those then, to us today, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and if you didn't hear me once, I'll say it again. Again, I say rejoice. I remind you as Paul is writing this letter to the church at Philippi, an epistle is a fancy word for a letter. So what we call the book of Philippians was actually a letter that Paul wrote to the church and to the believers that were in that church. If you recall, he wrote this letter from the Marriott. He wrote this letter from a Roman prison, a dungeon. He was in the hole. The place that he was at was slimy and moldy and dirty and rat-filled and roach-infested. He found himself there, tired, hungry, cold, sickly, and wet, in this blackened pit. To make matters worse, if things could get any worse, a Roman guard was attached to him inside that little four-by-six cell. 24-7, every hour of every day of every week of every month that God's man was in this prison, this dungeon, this pit, this hole. He was attached to a Roman security guard. If anybody ever had a right to sing that old hee-haw song, gloom, despair, and agony on me, Paul had that right. But he didn't sing that song. He had another song he sang that day. And every day he was there. You know what it was? I've got joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Do you have a song? What's your song where you're at right now in life? As we journey through life, if we, where are you at? And what's your song? Because your song says a lot about who you are. And Paul is singing a song of joy while he's in a prison, a dungeon, a pit. He has joy. Despite his circumstance, despite his situation, he has an attitude and an action of rejoicing. He's uplifting, he's optimistic, he has a sunny side, upside of life. 
And because of that, his prison, he has transformed into a resort. Think about that. Oh, he's still in prison, don't get me wrong. But his attitude about it, his action in it, has changed the way he sees things, the way he responds to things. When you read Philippians chapter 4, you almost wish you were with him. Because it is so, as I said, positive and upbeat. Before we see his attitude and the actions that he undertook and the assurances that he had, let me ask you a question. Because you know the Bible's not just a story about people who lived hundreds of years ago. It's a story about people that are living right here, right now. The Bible's a living book. And as Paul is in a dungeon, a prison, a hole, as we're about to see in Philippians 4, may I ask you a question? Would you happen to be in a prison right now? Would you happen to be in a prison? Would you happen to be in a dungeon? Would you happen to be in a hole? Would you happen to be in a blackened pit? Could it just be you're in a dungeon of despair? Maybe you're shackled to bad health. Maybe you're behind the bars of fear and hopelessness. Maybe you're surrounded by closing in walls of guilt and loneliness and pain and stress. What song are you singing today? Gloom, despair, and agony on me? Or I've got joy, joy, joy down in my heart. Three things I want us to look at very quickly in the time that we have. First of all, I want you to think with me about Paul's attitude in the dungeon, in the prison, in the pit, in the hole that he finds himself in. He has an attitude. Notice his attitude, if you would, in verses 4 through 6. Look at your Bible. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men, for the Lord is at hand. And then he says, be careful for nothing, in verse 6. Paul understood that what a man thinketh is what he will eventually do. Whatever predominates your mind, whatever controls your mind, is pretty much going to be a determinant, a precursor, if you will, what you're going to do later. What a man thinketh, he becomes. Paul understood that. So he understood that there's a battle going on in our mind, continually, constantly, about how we're going to think about things. And Paul said, even though I'm in a place that many people would consider a hell on earth, even though I'm in a prison, a dungeon, a hole, a pit, even though I'm facing all these circumstances and situations that are afflicting, I am going to rejoice. He takes on an attitude of rejoicing. And he says, I want you to know that not only do I rejoice, I rejoice with an amen. Because he amened his own rejoicing, did he not, in verse 4? 
Rejoice in the Lord always, and then I say amen. Rejoice again. You see, Paul was a smart man, ladies and gentlemen. And he understood that joy is a choice. We can be as joyful or as miserable as we want to be. And you will, by the way. If you want to be joyful in whatever you're going through in life, you will be joyful. If you want to be miserable, you'll be miserable. The choice is essentially ours. No, we can't always control what we're going to face, but we can control how we're going to face it. Paul said, I'm going to make joy my choice. I'm not going to be miserable. I'm not going to dwell on the hurts. I'm going to focus on the hallelujahs. I'm not going to think about the afflictions. I'm going to do some amens. I'm not going to whine and complain. I'm going to praise and give thanks. You see, Paul also understood that our circumstance and situation, whatever yours is, whatever mine is, whatever his was, doesn't have to be a controller. We control things. Through Christ Jesus, we have the ability to control the situations and circumstances that so often control us. Paul understood that joy is not a feeling, it's a state of mind. It's an act of the will. He understood that this joy that he has came from Jesus Christ. You can't go to Walmart, Sam, and buy it. You can get everything else at Walmart, but you can't buy joy. Joy comes from a dynamic relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul had that. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And the only way you're going to have the fruit of the Spirit is be filled with the Spirit. The only way you'll be filled with the Spirit is you trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul had joy. Was it a joy that the Roman guard that was chained to him understood? I'm sure not. I'm sure this Roman guard was used to people cussing and fussing, whining and woeing, complaining and criticizing, grizzling and griping. And here he's got Paul with a big smile on his face, singing Amazing Grace. What a friend we have in Jesus. Oh, Paul had joy. Same kind of joy that William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, had when he was told he was going to be blind. You know what he said? I've served Jesus with my sight. I can serve him with no sight. Same kind of joy that John Bunyan had when he was in prison for 12 years and he wrote the, the classic Pilgrim's Progress and he wrote it on little bits of scrap paper, the book. Little bits at a time, and he passed them out of the prison secretly. The same kind of joy that Robert Louis Stevenson had on his deathbed when he was asked if he needed anything, and he said, yes, I need something. Bring me the Bible to read one last time. 
You see, people without Jesus, they don't understand that joy because they don't have it. They understand happiness, which is always predicated on what's going on around you. If things good are happening, you're happy. If things going on around you are not so happy, then you're sad. But you can have joy all the time. Because joy comes from the inside out. It comes from a risen Christ. And it comes by your choice to have it. He also has an attitude that I want you to see in verse 5. Paul is taking control of his attitude in Philippians 4. He says, I choose to rejoice. I'll have an attitude of rejoicing. And then he says, I'll have an attitude of moderation, of gentleness. Look at verse 5. He says, let your moderation be known to all men. That word moderation is an old English word that means to be gentle. To be gentle and kind to people while you're in the prison, the dungeon, and the pit. Now, you ought to be gentle and kind to people all the time. Amen? But particularly, you need to be gentle and kind to people when you are in a troublesome spot. You know why? Because most of us, when we find ourselves in difficult places, going through difficult things, we like to blame somebody else, don't we? In fact, we lash out at people sometimes because we get frustrated, we get aggravated, we get angry. We're miserable. And misery loves company. And so we, we find people that we love particularly, but other people as well. And we say unkind things to them. We lose our temper. We become critical and negative. We accuse them. We blame them. We turn cold. We turn bitter. And Paul said, I have every right, humanly speaking, to do that, but I'm not going to do that. I make a choice to rejoice, and I make a choice to be nice to people. I'm not going to hurt the very people that love me and pray for me because I'm angry about where I'm at. I accept where I'm at. It's nobody's fault. And I'm going to be nice to them, and kind to them and gentle to them. I'm going to make sure I have that kind of attitude. And then... He says in verse 6, I'm going to get rid of worry. Now we're talking about an attitude that he says, I'm going to have. You can have whatever kind of attitude you want to have. Again, it's your choice. Paul says, I choose to have a joyful attitude. I choose to have a gentleness toward other people attitude. I choose, he says in verse 6, not to worry. Not to worry. He says, be careful for nothing in verse 6. That word careful means don't worry about nothing. Careful is a fancy word for worry. What's the favorite indoor sport in America? Have you ever thought about it? Oh, basketball, Pastor, no. This is more popular than basketball. has more participants. Worrying. <laughs> Some of you can't play basketball, but I bet every one of you here worry. We worry. And we usually worry about things that will never happen. 
We worry about things that have happened in the past that we can't change. We worry about things that are petty, insignificant, trite, who cares? And yet 90% of our worries, according to people who study worry warts, they call them worryologists, or something like that. <laughs> They've determined that. Only 10% of our worries are legitimate. 90% of them will never happen, have already happened and can't be changed, or don't matter. Heard the story about a woman who was a constant, perpetual, persistent worrier about somebody breaking in her house at night. I mean, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, Every single day, she went to bed telling her husband, oh, somebody's going to break in our house. Somebody's going to break. Oh, she was just all in a frizzy. Well, lo and behold, one night, 3 o'clock in the morning, she hears some noise downstairs. She shakes her husband and says, you better get downstairs. I told you there's somebody down there. Well, he goes down, trips on the light, and guess what? He's face to face with the burglar. And the man doesn't holler at the burglar. He doesn't even become aggressive with the burglar. He asks a favor of the burglar. He said, before we settle any of this, would you be so kind to come upstairs and meet my wife? She's been waiting on you for 10 years. Worry. It's a waste of time and energy. Worry. It's debilitating. It's like opening the oil cap on your engine of your car and pouring a cup of sand in it. It will shut the engine down. And, and sand to an engine is what worry is to a body. If you worry long enough, it will shut you down physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Do you know that worry is a kissing cousin to atheism? Atheists don't believe in God. But a Christian who's a worry wart, what does that say about God? He must not be because I'm doing all the worrying. Worry is a reflection on how big your God is. May I ask you a question? How big's your God? Good question. How big's your God? Because some of us have a mighty small God. He's a very weak God. He's a very disinterested God. He's a very limited God. You know why I know that? Because we worry. You think David worried when he faced Goliath? You think David went out there anxious and stressed out? May I suggest to you, David saw the size of God versus the size of Goliath. He said, this is a piece of cake. You think Joshua was worried when he stood before that city fortress of Jericho? No, because his God was bigger than Jericho. You think Elijah was worried? When he stood on Mount Carmel, 
one man versus 450 false prophets of Baal? No, he wasn't. Because if God was for him, nobody could be against him. What I'm trying to get you to see is when we worry, we make our God small. What we're saying is God can't help me. The one who in the beginning created the heavens and earth, he can't do nothing for me. What a sad way to live, believing that God is not able. But that was Paul's attitude, ladies and gentlemen. Paul took control of his mind. Now listen to me, he's in the dungeon, he's in the prison, he's in the hole, he's in the pit. He's suffering. And yet in all of that, he says, I'm going to control right here. I choose to rejoice. I choose to do that. Not going to be miserable. I choose to rejoice. And I'm going to be kind and gentle with people. I'm not going to lash out at people. It's not their fault. It may not be anybody's fault. Maybe it's, I don't know about all that. He just says, I'm going to be nice to people. And he says, I'm not going to worry. As much as I humanly can, I'm not going to worry. Now let's move on secondly to his actions. Because remember, what you eventually think here is going to be what you do here. So what comes out of this changing of his mind to rejoice and to be gentle and to not worry? Well, if you notice in verse 6, we see he begins to pray. He takes on an action that comes out of the attitude of prayer. He says, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. Paul said, I, I'm going to trade my worrying in for praying. I'm going to stop worrying, I'm going to start praying. And notice he says in verse 6, he's going to pray about everything. You say, Pastor, I only pray about the big stuff. I don't worry, God, about the little stuff. Let me ask you a question, sir. What's big to God? <laughs> I mean, we think we're doing God a favor by not bringing him little stuff. Well, listen, anything you bring to God, he can handle. And by the way, when he handles something for you, he's not taking away any way, shape, or form his ability to do anything else for anybody. God can take care of 10,000 of your prayer requests and still have time for 10,000 of everybody else's. He's God unlimited. Paul says, I pray about things. Paul was a Jeremiah 33.3 man. Call upon the Lord and he will answer you. And he will show you great and mighty things you could never know. He'll do for you great and mighty things you could never do. Paul believed that when you call upon the Lord, which means you invite the Lord, he will come and bring his wisdom and power into your situation and circumstance, and he will make things better. Paul believed that, do you? He also believed if you cast your cares upon the Lord, he'll ignore you. Some of you shaking your head. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> Cast your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. Paul's running mate was Peter. And Peter wrote that. 
Bring your cares to the Lord. Give your cares to the Lord. He'll take care of it. There's no need for you to worry about it. Give them to Him. And that's what Paul did. That's what prayer is. Calling upon the Lord, inviting the Lord to come into where you're at. And giving Him what you're facing and saying, God, you take care of it. I won't tell you how to do your business. You just take care of it. Notice there's three words in verse 6 that all have to do with prayer. They're, if you're looking in the King James Bible, the words are kind of look like they all mean the same. They're just variations, but they all are a little bit different. Paul says, in everything by prayer and supplication, and then he says, let your request. I want you to think about prayer, supplication, and request, because what prayer Paul is doing is giving you and I an outline of how to do this praying instead of worrying. First of all, the, the word prayer he's talking about here is a worship of God. Do you know prayer is a worship of God? Every time we go to the Lord in prayer, we ought to begin by adoring Him, admiring Him, being affectionate toward Him, loving Him and loving what, who He is, not just loving what He does for us. Can you imagine having a relationship with somebody and the only time they ever say anything to you is when they got their hand out wanting something? It wouldn't be much of a relationship, would it? God wants to help us, but He also wants us to love Him just because He's God and He loves us. And that word prayer means to worship Him for who He is. And then that word supplication means once you have worshipped Him for who He is, once you've thanked Him and showed your appreciation and your gratitude for who He is and what He's done for you, supplication means you specifically tell Him what you want Him to do. Specifically tell Him. God is a God of specifics, not generalities and ambiguities and stuttering and stammering. Tell God specifically what you want Him to do. Before my children had a car, they would come to me as teenage boys and they would ask me for my car. They could, they could borrow the car. They didn't say, beat around the bush. Dad, you, you, is that your car out there, Dad? Yeah, that's my car. Sure is a nice set of wheels, Dad. Yeah, it is. Dad, I, 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 I kind of need a car, you know, for tonight. Yeah. You using your car? I mean, they don't do that. Dad, can I borrow the car? <laughs> That's what we're to do with the Lord. We just need to come and be specific and straight up. And then we make requests. That last word request means, listen, we worship Him, we give Him our specific request, and then we invite Him to come in and take over. You see, He's the Lord. He takes over. Most of us like to keep him in the, the, the passenger seat on the front or in the back seat. When he comes into our situation and circumstance, he moves behind the wheel. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just Jesus. He's not just Christ. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says prayer is what I do with my action because I've got a new attitude. And then he says, you need, I'm going to guard my mind. This is the second thing that goes with his action. 
Now you got it? His attitude here is affecting what he does here. Because he's rejoicing, because he's gentle, because he's not going to worry, he's now going to spend his days in prayer, and he's going to spend his days guarding his mind from trash. Notice he says in verse 8, Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be anything virtuous, if there be anything that has praise, think on these things. Paul understood that sometimes our minds tend to drift to the negative and nasty particularly when we're in a situation or circumstance that's uncomfortable or painful or troublesome to us. Paul said, I am taking control not only of my attitude, but I'm taking control of how what goes into my mind. Is your mind toxic? Is your mind a sewer pond? For all the sludge of negativity and nastiness that this world can put into it? Or is your mind a pond of fresh, clear running water? Constantly being refurbished with positiveness and purity. What you allow into your pond, if I can use that expression, is based on pretty much who you are. Heard the story about a man who went to a small town. He was new, just moving there. And he saw an old fellow sitting in the park on the bench, and the new fellow went up to the old man and said, Listen, can you tell me what kind of people are in this town? I'm new. And the old man said, Well, tell me about the people that was in the town you came from. He said, I'm telling you, that's the biggest bunch of negative, nasty, mean people you'll ever meet. Nah, 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 nah. Bunch of gossips. The old man said, well, that's the kind of people we have here. <laughs> but another man came. He's also new to the town. Sees the old man on the bench and comes up and says, listen, I'm new to this town. Can you tell me a little bit about the people? What kind of people live here? The old man said, well, tell me about the people that in the town you came from. He said, I'm telling you, they're friendly. They're nice. They're sweet. They're good neighbors. And the old man said, well, that's the kind of people we have here. Are you picking up what he was saying? How you think. And how you talk about other people is a reflection of who you are. Boy, that, that, there's quietness in the house. If you are negative toward other people, it's because you're negative to yourself. 
If you're nasty to other people, it's because you're nasty and within yourself. Moving isn't going to change that, will it? Because you're the problem and you go everywhere you go. Paul said, I'm taking control of my mind. If it's not true, if it's not honest, if it's not just, if it's not pure, if it's not lovely, if it's not a good report, I am not going to allow it in here. Because my mind will control my actions. Now let's close it out. Time is out. Paul says, I've decided in my prison, in my dungeon, that I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to put a smile on my face, a smile on my heart. I'm going to have a sparkle in my eye. I'm going to sing songs about Jesus. I'm going to be nice to people. And I'm not going to worry. Refuse to do it. Instead, I'm going to spend my time in prayer, praising God for who He is, asking His help in my situation and circumstance, and letting Him do whatever He chooses to do with the perfect confidence He'll do it, and He'll do it right. That's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to control my mind. I'm going to make sure that what goes into this noggin is stuff that will make my pond pure and fresh and sparkling. And then he closes out by saying, when I do that, God will give me two things. First of all, verse 7, God will give me his peace. When I got the right attitude and I have the right action, God will then show him up and he'll give me his assurance. And one of those assurances will be his peace. Notice it says in verse 7, the peace of God which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You ever found anybody that has such peace? I mean, just they just got a contentment. It's conspicuous, you spot it, it's contagious, you want it. Peace. It is well with my soul. No matter what's going on in their life, it's well with their soul. They're like the general when the, the soldier came and said, General, I've got some bad news to share with you. We're surrounded on all four sides and outnumbered ten to one. And the general said, Well, that's not bad news, that's good news. Now we can shoot in any direction and hit somebody. <laughs> that's peace. And then he said, I have another assurance. Not only will the Lord give me peace, which this world desperately is looking for, except they're looking in the wrong places. They think a bag of goodies and a bottle of wine and a warm body will give peace, and they find out they've been sold a bill of goods by the liar, the devil. But God gives peace. And also God will give himself. You notice in verse 6, or excuse me, verse 5, it says, The Lord is at hand. This God who will pull up alongside of you and give you peace, this God who is a God of the brokenhearted, who will save those who have a troubled spirit, He one day is going to give us Himself because He's coming again. 
one day, very soon, the father is going to say to the son, go get my children. And Jesus will come. And he will come for us and he will take us to a place where there's no more dungeons and pits and holes and prisons in life. He'll take us to a place where there's no emergency rooms or hospitals or nursing homes or funeral homes or prisons or mental asylums or shelves for the homeless or the abused, no soup kitchens for the hungry, no orphanages for those who have no parents, no facilities for those who are handicapped or deformed. He'll take us to a place that's perfect. No more crying there. No more dying there. No more aging there. No more crime. No more sin. Perfection. Paul says, I have that assurance. This world's not my home, Paul said. I'm not really worried about it. My home's there. Those men who served in Vietnam, that wasn't your home. You endured what you had to endure. But you look forward to coming home. We'll endure what we have to endure because that's our home. A man went to a therapist with great sadness. He said to his psychiatrist, I need your help. I'm just sad. I need something to make me laugh. The psychiatrist said, You are really lucky. Do you know the circus is in town? And do you know Emmett Kelly is the clown? He is a master clown, one of the greatest clowns of all time. You need to get you a ticket to that circus. And you go there and you will laugh, and it will make you feel a whole lot better. Go to the circus and see Emmett Kelly, and he'll make you laugh. The man looked at the psychiatrist and said, I am Emmett Kelly. (laughs) Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.